I will never forget the visit we made to the Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia a few years ago. My wife and I had visited a number of American historical sites from Fort Ticonderoga to Yorktown, and we had no idea of what we would find at Appomattox, knowing that it was the site of the surrender of Lee's army to Grant, and believing it would be a short walk to a dusty courthouse mixed with some artifacts of the past. We found it to be a moving experience in a number of ways. We were met by one of the character actors there, all the actors having taken the identity of real persons who experienced Appomattox in some way. Ours was an Appomattox farm boy who left the farm to join the Army of Northern Virginia, and four years later, having lost his brothers in the fighting, was with Lee's army in Appomattox when the terms of surrender were agreed upon. We also learned the story of the silent witness, the rag doll owned by the McLean family's seven-year-old daughter, Lula, a doll which witnessed the signing of the surrender from its place on the mantletop in the McLean's home, which Union troops had requested use of to hammer out an agreement which would end the war. The doll, which was taken from the house, along with half the furniture, by one of the Union officers who was there that day, is a stark reminder that the cost of war goes far beyond men and material, that the effects also touch seven-year-old girls in ways we never think of when we look back at the history and tragedies of war. Welcome to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This episode, titled The Silent Witness, is from our Histories collection and tells the story of seven-year-old Lula McLean's rag and horsehair doll, which, from its position on the mantletop of the McLean House Parlor in the village of Appomattox Courthouse, Virginia, witnessed Lee's surrender to Grant, which signaled the end of the bloodiest war ever fought on American soil. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. In just over one week before the Battle of Appomattox Courthouse in the spring of 1865, General Robert E. Lee had lost over half his army. During the siege of Petersburg from June 1864 to April of 1865, Lee had about 60,000 men under his command, facing over 100,000 Union troops. On April 1, a Union victory at the Battle of Five Forks made it possible for Grant's forces to wrap around Petersburg, leaving Lee vulnerable. When Federals broke through Lee's defenses at Petersburg the next day, Lee was forced to evacuate. Thousands of soldiers were captured at the Battle of Five Forks, the Petersburg Breakthrough, and Sailor's Creek, where about a quarter of the Confederate Army surrendered after being cut off from Lee. Grant's forces pursued and harried the rebels constantly as they chased them west along the rebel supply lines. Desertion was rampant among the starving and beleaguered Confederate soldiers, and they took huge casualties. Heavily outnumbered and low on supplies, Lee's situation by April was dire. He led a series of night marches, hoping to make Farmville, Virginia, and supplies and needed food for his men. But the attempt to reach his supplies was futile. Lee sent word to Grant that he wanted to meet to discuss terms. They met around 2 o'clock in the afternoon at the house of Wilmer McLean in the village of Appomattox. Four years earlier, Wilmer McLean, who then had a quiet farm on Bull Run Creek in Manassas, Virginia, had quickly grabbed his family and vacated their house as Union General Beauregard requested that the house there be used as headquarters in the battle that was about to take place, the first major battle of the Civil War, Bull Run. The next day after McLean, his wife and children left, while General Beauregard and his staff were enjoying a meal in the dining room, a cannonball tore through the chimney, destroying a part of the house. 
the McLeans soon moved 120 miles to the south, to the quiet little village of Appomattox, and built another home, this one well-built and well-furnished, with a good-sized parlor filled with fine furniture, a marble-topped table, and a fireplace mantel upon which rested a little rag doll that Mrs. McLean had made from extra material she had on hand and filled with horsehair. The little rag doll was the favorite of seven-year-old Lula McLean, and it would watch over the family from its spot on the mantel when Lula wasn't playing with it. As the two armies converged at Appomattox on April 9, 1865, and following the exchange of a series of courier-delivered messages between Lee and Grant, a place was chosen for them to meet to hammer out the terms of the surrender. The nicest home in the area was the McLean House. Confederate Colonel Charles Marshall had ridden into the village called Appomattox Courthouse, or Appomattox, and asked the first man he spotted which happened to be Wilmer McLean, to assist him in finding a suitable home that could host a meeting between Union and Confederate commanders. McLean first showed him a dilapidated, unfurnished brick home, which Marshall refused, and then McLean reluctantly offered his own home. General Lee was the first to enter and sat in the large living room parlor. General Grant then arrived and entered the room alone while his staff waited on the front lawn. After a short period, his staff was summoned to the room. General Horace Porter, present in the room, has left us this eyewitness account. General Grant mounted the steps and entered the house, while the members of the staff and some general officers who had gathered in the front yard remained outside, feeling that he would probably want his first interview with General Lee to be, in a measure, private. In a few minutes, Colonel Babcock came to the front door and, making a motion with his hat toward the sitting room, said, the general says come in. It was then about half past one on Sunday, the ninth of April. We entered and found General Grant sitting at a marble top table in the center of the room, and Lee sitting beside a small oval table near the front window, in the corner opposite to the door by which we entered, and facing General Grant. Colonel Marshall, Lee's military secretary, was standing at his left. We walked in softly and ranged ourselves quietly about the sides of the room, very much as people enter a sick chamber when they expect to find the patient dangerously ill. Some found seats on the sofa and the few chairs which constituted the furniture, but most of the party stood. The contrast between the two commanders was striking and could not fail to attract marked attention as they sat ten feet apart facing each other. General Grant, then nearly 43 years of age, was five feet eight inches in height, with shoulders slightly stooped. His hair and full beard were a nut brown, without a trace of gray in them. He had on a single-breasted blouse made of dark blue flannel, unbuttoned in front and showing a waistcoat underneath. He wore an ordinary pair of top boots with his trousers inside and was without spurs. The boots and portions of his clothes were spattered with mud. He had on a pair of thread gloves of a dark yellow color, which he had taken off upon entering the room. His felt Sugarloaf, stiff-brimmed hat was thrown on the table beside him. He had no sword, and a pair of shoulder straps was all there was about him to designate his rank. In fact, aside from these, his uniform was that of a private soldier. Lee, on the other hand, was fully six feet in height and quite erect for one of his age, for he was Grant's senior by 16 years. His hair and full beard were silver-gray and quite thick, except that the hair had become a little thin in front. He wore a new uniform of Confederate gray, buttoned up to the throat, and at his side he carried a long sword of exceedingly fine workmanship. We asked Colonel Marshall afterward how it was that both he and his chief wore such fine toggery and looked so much as if they had turned out to go to church, 
while with us our outward garb scarcely rose to the dignity even of shabby genteel. He enlightened us regarding the contrast by explaining that when their headquarters wagons had been pressed so closely by our cavalry just a few days before, and it was found they would have to destroy all their baggage, except the clothes they carried on their backs, each one, naturally, selected the newest suit he had, and sought to propitiate the god of destruction by a sacrifice of his second best. General Grant began the conversation by saying, I met you once before, General Lee, while we were serving in Mexico, when you came over from General Scott's headquarters to visit Garland's brigade, to which I then belonged. I have always remembered your appearance, and I think I should have recognized you anywhere. Yes, replied General Lee, I know I met you on that occasion, and I have often thought of it and tried to recollect how you looked, but I've never been able to recall a single feature. After some further mention of Mexico, General Lee said, I suppose, General Grant, that the object of our present meeting is fully understood. I asked to see you to ascertain upon what terms you would receive the surrender of my army. General Grant replied, The terms I propose are those stated substantially in my letter sent to you yesterday. That is, the officers and men surrendered to be paroled and disqualified from taking up arms again until properly exchanged, and all arms, ammunition, and supplies to be delivered up as captured property. Lee nodded an assent, and then said, Those are about the conditions which I expected would be proposed. General Grant then continued, Yes, I think our correspondence indicated pretty clearly the action that would be taken at our meeting, and I hope it may lead to a general suspension of hostilities and be the means of preventing any further loss of life. Lee inclined his head as indicating his accord with this wish, and General Grant then went on to talk at some length in a very pleasant vein about the prospects of peace. General Grant then began writing the terms of surrender. He wrote very rapidly, but at one point he paused and looked at General Lee. His eyes seemed to be resting on the handsome sword that hung at that officer's side. He said afterward that this set him to thinking that it would be an unnecessary humiliation to require the Confederate officers to surrender their swords, and a great hardship to deprive them of their personal baggage and horses. As a result, Grant wrote the surrender agreement so that Confederate officers would be able to keep their horses and personal possessions. After completing the terms of surrender, Grant handed them over to Lee for him to review. Lee took it and laid it on the table beside him, while he drew from his pocket a pair of steel-rimmed spectacles and wiped the glasses carefully with his handkerchief. Then he crossed his legs, adjusted the spectacles very slowly and deliberately, took up the draft of the letter, and proceeded to read it attentively. It consisted of two pages— when Lee came to the sentence about the officer's sidearms, private horses, and baggage, he showed for the first time during the reading of the letter a slight change of countenance, and was evidently touched by this act of generosity. It was doubtless the condition mentioned to which he particularly alluded when he looked toward General Grant as he finished reading and said with some degree of warmth in his manner, This will have a very happy effect upon my army. General Grant then said, Unless you have some suggestions to make in regard to the form in which I have stated the terms, I will have a copy of the letter made in ink and sign it. There is one thing I would like to mention, Lee replied after a short pause. The cavalrymen and artillerists own their own horses in our army. Its organization in this respect differs from that of yours. This expression attracted the notice of our officers present as showing how firmly the conviction was grounded in his mind that we were two distinct countries. He continued, I would like to understand whether these men will be permitted to retain their horses. You will find that the terms as written do not allow this, General Grant replied. Only the officers are permitted to take their private property. 
Lee read over the second page of the letter again and then said, No, I see the terms do not allow it. That is clear. His face showed plainly that he was quite anxious to have this concession made, and Grant said very promptly, and without giving Lee time to make a direct request. Well, the subject is quite new to me. Of course, I did not know that any private soldiers owned their animals, but I think this will be the last battle of the war. I sincerely hope so, and that the surrender of this army will be followed soon by that of all the others and I take it that most of the men in the Confederate ranks are small farmers, and as the country has been so raided by the two armies, it is doubtful whether they will be able to put in a crop to carry themselves and their families through the next winter without the aid of the horses they are now riding. And I will arrange the surrender agreement this way. I will not change the terms as now written, but I will instruct the officer I shall appoint to receive the paroles to let all the men who claim to own a horse or mule take the animals home with them to work their farms." Lee now looked greatly relieved, and though anything but a demonstrative man, he gave every evidence of his appreciation of this concession, and said, This will have the best possible effect upon the men. It will be very gratifying, and will do much toward conciliating our people. Members of both general staffs began writing out the final versions of the surrender agreement. As they did this, General Lee brought up the subject of prisoners of war. I have a thousand or more of your men as prisoners, General Grant, a number of them officers whom we have required to march along with us for several days. I shall be glad to send them into your lines as soon as it can be arranged, for I have no provisions for them. I have, indeed, nothing for my own men. They have been living for the last few days principally upon parched corn, and we are badly in need of both rations and forage. I telegraphed to Lynchburg, directing several trainloads of rations to be sent on by rail from there. And when they arrive, I should be glad to have the present wants of my men supplied from them. At this remark, all eyes turned toward Union General Philip Sheridan, for he had captured these trains with his cavalry the night before near Appomattox Station. General Grant replied, I should like to have our men sent within our lines as soon as possible. I will take steps at once to have your army supplied with rations, but I am sorry we have no forage for the animals. We have had to depend upon the country for our supply of forage. Of about how many men does your present force consist? Indeed, I'm not able to say, Lee answered after a slight pause. My losses in killed and wounded have been exceedingly heavy, and, besides, there have been many stragglers and some deserters. All my reports and public papers had to be destroyed on the march to prevent them from falling into the hands of your people. Many companies are entirely without officers, and I have not seen any returns for several days so that I have no means of ascertaining our present strength. General Grant had taken great pains to have a daily estimate made of the enemy's forces from all the data that could be obtained, and judging it to be about 25,000 at this time, he said, Suppose I send over 25,000 rations. Do you think that will be a sufficient supply? I think it will be ample, remarked Lee, and added with considerable earnestness of manner, and it will be a great relief, I assure you. After Grant and Lee signed the terms of surrender, they and their officers walked out to the porch. Lee signaled to his orderly to bring up his horse, Traveler, and while the animal was being bridled, the general stood on the lowest step and gazed sadly in the direction of the valley, beyond where his army lay, now an army of prisoners. He smote his hands together a number of times in an absent sort of way, seemed not to see the group of Union officers in the yard who rose respectfully at his approach and appeared unconscious of everything about him. All appreciated the sadness that overwhelmed him and he had the personal sympathy of everyone who beheld him at this supreme moment of trial. The approach of his horse seemed to recall him from his reverie, and he at once mounted. 
General Grant now stepped down from the porch and, moving toward him, saluted him by raising his hat. He was followed in this act of courtesy by all the officers present. Lee raised his hat respectfully and rode off to break the sad news to the brave fellows whom he had so long commanded. General Grant and his staff then mounted and started for the headquarters camp, which, in the meantime, had been pitched nearby. The news of the surrender had reached the Union lines, and the firing of salutes began at several points. But the general sent orders at once to have them stopped, and used these words in referring to the occurrence. The war is over. The rebels are our countrymen again. And the best sign of rejoicing after the victory will be to abstain from all demonstrations in the field. The following day, Lee and Grant met again to discuss minor details of the surrender. The two generals then returned to their respective armies to make sure that the surrender proceeded as planned. Grant and Lee then prepared to travel to Washington and Richmond to tell political leaders on both sides about the surrender. The hour of noon arrived, and General Grant mounted his horse and started with his staff for Washington. Lee set out for Richmond, and it was felt by all that peace had at last dawned upon the land. The charges were now withdrawn from the guns. The campfires were left to smolder in their ashes. The flags were tenderly furled. Those historic banners, battle-stained, bullet-ridden, many of them remnants of their former selves, with scarcely enough left of them on which to imprint the names of the battles they had seen. And the Army of the Union and the Army of Northern Virginia turned their backs upon each other for the first time in four long, bloody years. At the McLean house, after Lee had left, Lula's rag doll watched as officers of the Union Army of the Potomac began taking tables, chairs, and various other furnishings in the house, essentially anything that was not tied down as souvenirs. McLean protested, but they refused to stop, handing him what they considered was fair payment for many of the items and simply walking out with the rest, sometimes throwing money on the floor. Major General Edward Ord paid $40 for the marble top table Lee had used to sign the surrender. While Major General Philip Sheridan took the table upon which Grant had drafted the document for $20, Sheridan then asked General Armstrong Custer to take it and give it to Libby, Custer's wife. Civil War historian Shelby Foote wrote, Something close to pandemonium set in. As McLean protested, the officers tore apart the McLean's cane-bottomed chairs and cut upholstery strips from the sofas as mementos. They took the stone inkstand, the candelabras from the mantel, and Lula's rag doll, which was tossed from officer to officer until one finally pocketed it. The table and chairs now reside at the Chicago History Museum and the Smithsonian Institution National Museum of American History. The rag doll was returned to Appomattox, a hundred and twenty years later, by a relative of the officer, and resides there now in the museum. At the National Park Service website, nps.gov, if you search for Lula McLean's rag doll, you'll find this story by Joe Williams and Ryan Henry, titled, Lula McLean's Rag Doll. My name is long since forgotten. Folks just call me the silent witness now. I am famous and well taken care of, but it's not the same as being loved. It all seemed so long ago, back before the late unpleasantness, when Lula and I would play for hours in the big house at Manassas. Lula McLean was seven years old the last time I saw her. She always said I was her baby. In the spring of 1861, things started to change in Virginia. Lula's parents said the Yankees were coming and we would have to leave our beautiful home. I didn't know what Yankees were, 
but I found out four years later. We had to move to a smaller house in a little town called Appomattox Courthouse. Lula's daddy said we would be safe in our new house until the war was over. He didn't know that General Lee and the whole Confederate Army of Northern Virginia would show up on our doorstep to end the war. April 9, 1865 is a date I'll never forget. That was the last time I ever saw my Lula. I was in the parlor on the mantel where she told me to wait until Lula's daddy came in with a tall man in a gray suit and shiny brass buttons. The man thanked Mr. McLean and told him the parlor would be fine. It wasn't long before another man in a gray suit arrived, accompanied by a dark-haired man in a blue suit with more of the shiny buttons. The second man, who I later learned was General Lee, reminded me of Lula's kindly grandfather, but he appeared to be somewhat sad as he sat down in the large cane-backed chair. Before long, I heard lots of horses, and then a man in a muddy blue suit came in and began talking to General Lee. The man was the Yankee chief, Grant, and he invited more blue men into the room. I heard General Lee tell him that the terms were generous and his men needed food. Grant said he would send some. General Lee shook his hand and left, and not long after, Grant left also. That was the surrender. When General Grant left the house, his blue men started joking and laughing. Some of them tried to buy the parlor furniture. Some of them didn't even offer to pay. One of the blue men picked me up and called me the silent witness to the surrender. That's how I got my new name. They all laughed again, and he threw me across the room at a man called Michael Sheridan. Then I was thrown again at another man who turned out to be an officer on General Philip Sheridan's staff. I had never been treated that way before except once by Lula's brother, John Wilmer, and her daddy soon took care of that. The blue staff officer, Captain Moore, stuffed me in his coat pocket and carried me off to his home in New York. He must have been very proud of me because he showed me to all his guests. I had my own little glass case with a brass plaque and was kept on the mantel in his library. After Captain Moore died, his children took care of me and continued to show me to all of their guests for years. I suppose that I never would have made it to this ripe old age without the care of the Moors, but poor Lula must have wondered whatever became of me. Finally, a 120 years later, a kind lady sent me home to Virginia. Lula is long gone. Our house was dismantled and reconstructed. The whole town of Appomattox Courthouse is a national park, and I am famous. I'm in a museum and visited by hundreds of people every day, but my favorites are the children. I'll also mention there's an excellent children's book written by Robin Friedman called The Silent Witness, A True Story of the Civil War, published by Houghton Mifflin, and it's available at Amazon. When other Confederate armies learned that Lee had surrendered, they laid their weapons down too. All across the South, the tattered, torn and ragged remains of various rebel military forces surrendered and returned to their homes to try and rebuild their lives. On April 18th, Confederate General Joseph Johnston surrendered his Army of Tennessee to Union General William T. Sherman in Raleigh, North Carolina. Johnston's army was the last rebel force of any significant size left in the South and his surrender made it clear that the Confederate nation no longer really existed. By May 26th, all Confederate armies in the South had surrendered, its soldiers scattered, returning to long-suffering friends and family. Upon returning home, they began the difficult process of rebuilding their lives out of the smoking ruins of the Confederacy. Northern communities, meanwhile, recognized that Lee's surrender meant that the war was over for all practical purposes. Joyful celebrations erupted all across the North as news of Grant's victory spread from big cities to the most remote homestead. Abolitionists expressed delight that slavery would finally be abolished from America, while Unionists sang and danced to celebrate the restoration of the United States. 
but most of all, people celebrated because Lee's surrender meant that the long years of violence and bloodshed were finally coming to an end. A few days after Lee's surrender, however, northern celebrations came to an abrupt end as one final act of violence shook the entire nation. On April 14, 1865, John Wilkes Booth shot President Abraham Lincoln at a Washington theater, then escaped into the night. Lincoln died the next day. The assassination shocked the country and triggered an outpouring of grief and rage across the North. A little more than a year after his Appomattox home made front-page news, Wilmer McLean took out an advertisement buried in the classified section of the July 1, 1866 New York Herald, announcing that he was placing the Surrender House, as he called it, up for sale, and stating that he wanted to return to his former farm on the battlefields of Manassas. He listed it as a five-acre property with a very comfortable double-brick dwelling with six spacious rooms, two frame buildings, stables, gardens, and a well of icy cold water, and expressed his hopes that it might catch the eye of a hotelier. He found no takers. He returned to Manassas in 1867 and eventually defaulted on his Appomattox house, which ended up being sold at public auction in 1869. Four years later, the Alexandria Gazette reported that McLean had taken a job with the Internal Revenue Service, making him one of the few Virginians who was granted a job under the new administration. McLean was once quoted to have said, The Civil War began in my backyard and ended on my front lawn. His children, including Lula, have disappeared into the shrouds of history. Only Lula's rag doll still survives to tell the story, and she's not saying a word. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. You can catch all our episodes by going to our website at 1001storiespodcast.com or at Facebook at facebook.com slash 1001heroes. If you're an iTunes user, hit the subscribe button. It's free, you know, and they'll alert you when each new episode is available. And 1001 Heroes will join your other favorites at the My Podcasts link at the bottom of your iTunes podcast homepage. For all other phones and laptops, just search Google plus 1001 Heroes and you'll find 50 ways to listen to our show. We're popular. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, always on the search for the untold stories of history. Email us at 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com with your ideas, which are always appreciated. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon. The beautiful music backtrack we use is a popular Civil War era song called Lorena, performed and arranged by Jay and Molly Unger, who have graciously allowed us to use it. It's from their CD, Civil War Classics. And if the music sounds hauntingly familiar, it was their Ashokan Farewell that Ken Burns chose for his PBS series on the Civil War.